Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Today, I'm chatting to Adnan Ebrahim. Adnan is an experienced entrepreneur having founded three businesses, successfully exiting two and still building his third. In his current venture, Adnan has decided to use his entrepreneurial skills to scale MyLabs, a company that's taken a new and unique approach to mental health. Their mission is to make the world a happier place and make taking care of our mental health as normal as going to the gym. Hey Adnan, thanks for chatting with us today. Hey Craig, thanks for having me on. Cool. So I'm going to just start with your background a little bit, if that's cool. So I think it's actually quite rare to chat to someone that's pretty much been an entrepreneur for as long as they've you know, been working. Um, what attracted you or what do you think kind of led you down that path pretty early on into the entrepreneurial? Oh, gosh, I, I guess my entrepreneurial career started when I was like a schoolboy. So I was I was one of those stereotypical school ground bellboys, if I far better term. And the first craze that I cottoned onto were these rubber wristbands that, you know, I was buying from sports soccer and selling them to mates at school. And that was my first experience of buying and selling. But, you know, both of my parents are fairly entrepreneurial. My mom has her own jewelry business, so she's very entrepreneurial. My dad is a dentist, which doesn't sound very entrepreneurial on the surface, but he had his own dental practice. So from a very early age, I was exposed to running a business, you know, doing payroll, doing accounts, He'd make, he'd give us, I remember he'd give us a pound for every checkbook stub we'd enter into a spreadsheet. So it's like small things like that, which I guess were the early genesis of kind of catching the entrepreneurial bug. Definitely. Yeah. I, I grew up, my dad was self-employed and he did a range of different businesses over like a 30 year period. I, I definitely think it rubs off, rubs off on you, but also kind of almost, if you see it happening and you know, it can happen, it allows it to be, seem like easier for you to do those things, I think. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk mainly about MyLabs, but before we do, it'd be good just to chat a little bit about your two previous businesses, both which were successful. So um, for anyone not familiar with them, would you be able to just chat about the two businesses, what they did, and I guess where you got them to at the point of exit? Yeah, sure. So the first business was small, much smaller than the second business, Car Throttle. It was called Blogtrepreneur. It was essentially a place that I would chronicle my own journey as an internet entrepreneur, learning about you know, how to sell ads, how to market SEO, how to basically get people to consume your content. That was a real, you know, USP and like genesis of um, blogging and creating content at scale. And I was coming back home from school every day, writing articles, checking my AdSense earnings, seeing how many pence I'd made that day. And, you know, after two years, it grew to 100,000 users. And I was making, you know, probably about about five grand a month um which for a 17 year old was yeah. was decent <laughs> and uh yeah i got approached by an american company who wanted to acquire the uh, website and yeah did a deal just before my 18th birthday and I, I remember my parents having to sign this you know the the proof of sale document and they had no idea that i had run this website at home it was like brand new to them but i needed a guardian to sign it <laughs> So it was a real, 
what on earth is this? What have you been doing online? And that spurred me onto my second business, which I started when I was at university. And I had always been obsessed with cars. And I thought, you know what, why don't I take what I'd learned from creating a community and now apply it to something that I'm super passionate about, cars. And that tagline of Top Gear for the Facebook generation was born. And we were really the first to capitalize on social traffic and social audiences. And that's where we grew very quickly to eventually becoming 15 million users, at our peak serving 500 million video views a month, selling to brands like Mercedes-Benz, Nissan, Michelin tires. And then in 2019, the business got acquired by Dennis Publishing, which was a more traditional media publisher, you know, magazines like Evo, Auto Express, the big, the big boys, basically. And uh, yeah, we, we, we sold the business to them in 2019. Incredible. And when you look back over those two ventures, like what were some of the main takeaways or learns that you then brought into, I guess, the third venture? So there were a bunch of learnings, I guess. The, the first was, I guess, around scale. Uh, because we had seen scale, we understood how to get scale in terms of people looking, eyeballs, marketing, you know, understanding how to build things that people want, I think, fundamentally on the web. And um, how to really go about creating a, a good organization to achieving that. Now, one of the biggest things I think you can create is an organization that is constantly learning and iterating and testing because more often than not at an early stage, you just, it's so rare that you'll, you know, find lightning in a bottle and strike it on the very first iteration, very first product that goes into the app store. In our case, you have to just constantly keep checking metrics, iterating, testing to keep finding you know, better and better product market fit. And then there's that point where you found it and then things explode. So we had learned that process over the last 10 years of how to iterate and try and find product market fit. And I think we brought that straight away through into my labs. Of course, there was a lot of how to raise money, how to hire people, how to, uh, uh, you know, set big visions, how to then execute against that vision. A lot of like the operations work that we had already done that again, we brought in. The, the essence of it is that we managed to accelerate quite quickly to getting a first version of our product out in the market, to then launching the product, to getting you know the first hires in the business, hiring great people that believe in the vision and the company, and you know raising over four million pounds in the process to allow us to go and do that. Um, so yeah, a lot of compressed learnings that happened over ten years that we just basically baked into a year and a half. And then obviously you're in the mental health and wellbeing space now. What attracted you to that next? Very different to the two previous businesses. Like, was it something towards in the car throttle that was already in the back of your mind? Was it a personal experience that you went through? Like, what what caused you to think actually this is the next space I should be spending my time in? There were there were a few reasons why it made sense for myself and my co-founder uh, Gabor, and Gabs was my chief operating officer at Car Throttle. So we we've been working together for nearly nine years now, actually, and we have both gone through similar. I guess, mental health struggles. So he struggled with health anxiety when he was a teenager, tried a bunch of things, went to a doctor, got prescribed, you know, medications, Xanax, nothing worked for him. And then he stumbled upon the world of meditation and mindfulness practice through his mum. And he found that that really helped him to understand his mind. And my journey was, I guess, during those years of car throttle and scaling a business, I was still, you know, young 20s founder, never had a job, didn't know what I was doing half the time. And it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy journey. It might sound like it was on the outside, but there were a lot of ups and downs and you know, pivots and 
um, things we had to solve. And it was tough. It was, I think I found it quite tough on myself mentally. And I then discovered the world of mindfulness and coaching, talking to someone in order to understand my mind. And the more we looked at the space after we had left um, the acquiring company of Carthot or Dennis, the more we realized that there really wasn't a product suitable for our millennial generation. So these were working millennials now. They're very used to consuming video content on mobile phone. They're very used to tracking metrics, data, very geeky from a physical health point of view. But there was nothing when it came to monitoring or improving your mental fitness. And that was how we came up with the idea for Mind Labs. And for anyone listening that's not aware of Mind Labs, can you just give an overview of what Mind Labs is, what the product does? Sure. Yeah. Mind Labs is a video first mental wellness platform. So we help our customers sleep better, stress less, and generally feel happier because we offer these video classes that are led by expert instructors. And these are instructors from the worlds of neuroscience. So everything that we do is very deeply steeped in proper scientific research, telling you the how you can basically become happier, um, all the way through to breathwork, mindfulness, experts. Um, and along the way, essentially, thanks to this huge growth in tracking biomarkers you know you might have heard the word biomarkers a lot but thanks to things like your apple watches fitbits aura rings we can now tell a lot about how you're doing physically so hey did you have a good night's sleep last night if you didn't maybe you're not going to be feeling too hot today or did your resting heart rate spike during a working day is it because of a work stress or you know are you struggling to unwind at the end of the day and there are so many of these biomarkers that can that we can then tie in and actually tell someone whether they're feeling good from a mental point of view. And so um, that's what the product essentially allows you to do. And the ultimate goal is that we can make taking care of your mind as normal as going to the gym. And um, go back to you and Gabor having both different experiences, but feeling like this was a space that still had a gap. Um, how did you go about validating that hypothesis? So you thought there was a problem. You both felt there wasn't something out there for the younger generation. Have you taken that to, yes, like validating that? So we did a bunch of different um, levels of validation before we actually launched the product. So the first was, this was prior to anything having been built as in, in terms of an app. We shot a video in a studio with an instructor that we had found on Instagram, two instructors actually, um, put a bit of personal money into it just to, you know, come up with something that was really, you know, engaging and high quality and something that people would want to watch. And essentially we sat 30 people in front of this video with a, a wearable and we measured how their biomarkers reacted when they consumed this 10 minute video. And it was, it was so fascinating because we actually used a brain wearable um, called an EEG headset looks at things like you know your brain waves and how relaxed they are or how active and therefore stressed your brain is and every single one of those participants dropped in terms of their relaxation so they became more relaxed as they started watching this class and we basically had a tiny little mvp that we had created which we then used in our investor pitches to say hey i think there's something here plus it's not just 30 people this problem affects 900 million people around the world if not really it's one in one one in every single person will have a period of time where they're not feeling too good how could we create a product that is used by every single person on this earth and that i think is what got a lot of people excited when we then raised the money within a month and a half we'd shipped the first app so this was a, a beta app on test flight 
uh, and then through marketing on Instagram, we would get people through into that app. Every release, every two weeks, month, we would release a new version, have a brand new cohort of users coming into the app and seeing if we were increasing their engagement and retention. So it was a really scientific way of trying to basically see if we built a good product first and then if we were improving that product over time. And that was then how we managed to raise our seed round last year. And on the topic of funding and speaking to investors, uh, two questions. One is, was it difficult from the point of view that neither yourself or, or Gabs had a background in health or science? And secondly, did it, I'd assume it went in your favor. Like, was it much easier, the fact you've both built and scaled a business next to one before from an investor point of view? For sure. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't discount the fact that we were essentially second-time venture-funded founders. So clearly, A, we understood what it took to go from pre-seed you know, through to Series A, which was the previous business, Car Throttle. We understood the mentality of a venture-backed business, which is, you know, you are a one or zero business when you, as soon as you raise that money, you have to be, you know, shooting for the stars. There's no real room to, you know, settle in the middle. And that's very aligned with what investors want, but you have to align with that yourselves as founders, you know, and not everyone wants that. Some people want to make, you know, don't want to have the pressure of a fast growth business at all costs, but that was something that myself and Gabs wanted to, because we wanted a product that would fundamentally be used worldwide and, venture is really the fastest way to get there so yeah it definitely helped we were second time founders from a health point of view i think we had done enough research on the space to give investors comfort in the fact that we knew what we were doing and of course after that it was about hiring the right people to work with us so you know one of our very first hires was Anne sophie who's a neuroscientist she's a head of mindfulness and with her science background as well it added more credibility to the fact that you know we were looking to understand the science behind this. And this wasn't just another consumer business. This was a health tech business as well. So yeah, you know, we also had to skill up our knowledge. There was a lot of time that we've spent digging into the competitive landscape, understanding the biomarker data, understanding what you can do and can't do with Apple Healthcare, um, whilst also having, you know, great experts on that team who understand that as well. And building a mobile first consumer app is tough. Consumers are <laughs> fickle. It's hard to keep them engaged, hard to keep them returning into the app. What are some of the, some of the things you've learned along the way or just general principles that you believe in when it comes to building a great consumer-first mobile app? Yeah, th there's some really great principles that I think we try and embody. And that the first one is probably something that I've mentioned already, which is the fact that you can always test something new. And it's very difficult when you have, I guess, existing ideas of what you think will work assumptions of what you think will work and our job is to test all of those assumptions so clearly we have an assumption in the vision of the company about the way the world is going to be in the future and that's a, an assumption as well but what we're trying to do is validate that through tests and in exactly the same way from a consumer product point of view you have to be willing to test every single angle so i'll, I'll give you an example we had an assumption that live would be a really sticky product um, part of the product for Mind Labs, and actually, what transpired is that people absolutely loved the concept of live. But when you asked them to tune in at seven a.m. or eight a.m. or nine p.m. or eight p.m., they just weren't coming. And in fact, what they were doing was replaying those classes at times that were more suitable for them. And from talking to those users, they basically said, "Hey, look, I'm pretty stretched on time, and I really struggle to create a habit around mindfulness anyway. So then to tune in at seven 
p.m. is so much of a stretch for me when my timetable is is already um, difficult, which then made us think, how can we help someone consume content in their own time more easily? And then we started really doubling down on more on-demand content and and tools around that on-demand content, like reminders, notice clever uh, push notifications that are biomarker specific as well. So um, you have to you have to be willing to be wrong a lot of times. And if you have an ego, you can't, it, it won't work because you'll constantly get battered. You'll constantly, you know, the data will prove that you were wrong. So you have to be willing to, to take it. And the fact that you are wrong about a bunch of stuff means that actually you'll go and find something that works really well. And then, you know, for example, onboarding, the first user experience is incredibly important. We know that 80 to 90% um, of your engagement initially will come on that very first day when people start to understand that product. And if they don't understand what that product's about in the first session, you might lose them for good. And it's very rare that if someone doesn't have a good first session, they will actually come back. So what's that happy path? And we're, we're constantly talking about what the happy path is for that user. What do we want them to do? And then what they're actually doing? And then can we basically change based on what we're seeing? So, I mean, there are so many, you know, talking about app store, best practices, uh, how can you entice someone from a marketing point of view when really you just have seconds and the comp the competitive space is fierce. You don't have a lot of time to convert someone. So how do you make your product stand out so much in this sea of health and fitness apps to make them convert? Um, and you know, there isn't, there isn't one uh, piece of knowledge It's death by a thousand cuts and you have to be willing to be cut a thousand times in order to find the right formula. And Continuing that on to kind of how you grow that user base then, because from my perspective, I was on the wait list. I was part of the beta group. It felt like a very engaged, closed community, but could have been really clever marketing. But I just wondered, like, in terms of now it's launched, what are your main channels for growth? What's what's really working potentially? What's, what's not working so well at the moment or in the past? Yeah. So in terms of where the growth is coming from, because we are video first, we fundamentally believe that we have a, a unique angle on the market by being able to provide a lot of video content into those environments where video is super important. So we had a lot of early success with Instagram, I guess in part because Reels started to really explode as Instagram reacted to TikTok. And because we had a lot of video content, it really helped us. And we were creating you know, really unique carousel text-based formats. Um, and then, you know, going across to TikTok now, and to be fair, we were late movers on TikTok. We're now starting to see some really interesting results when it comes to using TikToks as ads. And um, that's something that we're looking to explore and double down on. Um, but I think really one of the fundamental things is nurturing an email list, nurturing a community on Instagram, nurturing, because community is what we learned at Carfottle when we had, you know, 15 million followers cross-platform including a very engaged audience on YouTube with 3 million subscribers, and they would gobble up any content that we, we serve them. So our goal is how do we basically recreate that experience? I, th I think in terms of what's not working, um, I mean, in a startup, a thousand things, <laughs> and you're always trying to keep uh, fix those things <laughs> and do things better. But um, we were probably wrong, actually, about our target customer initially we had assumed that our target customer would be a lot younger so in the very early beta uh, testing stages of mind labs our target customer was more gen z so these were kind of social media addicts they were spending a lot of time on social media feeling unhappy about their their addictions or their um, ways of interaction with social media and therefore looking for a solution 
what we actually found is that our target customer is slightly older. We now call them the, the health optimizer. They are probably late 20s to early 30s, working millennials, and they're stressed out. And they're stressed out because of you know, work-related reasons or you know, relationship problems. Or, and that culminates in them not being able to sleep very well and having you know, things that we can then measure from a biomarker point of view. So yeah, I guess we got that wrong and we were quite quick to adapt to a different target audience. And talk a minute about the, the biomarkers and the data now that is accessible to people. How far do you think that can go from a MindNav's perspective and, and kind of the insights you can deliver to users, not necessarily now, but like in the future, if you could achieve everything you, you'd like to? I, I think the biomarker piece of MindNav's is, is massive. And the reason is because if you fast forward, if you re- rewind five years ago, how many people had an Apple Watch? very few the first versions of apple watch were considered not to be that good and they just didn't have a lot of you know great features and in the same way that the original iphone didn't have all of the things that make the iphone today but what we saw over the you know the last five years was people were wanting to religiously track their overall performance you had this i guess the biohacker really started to come into its own and now you have a bunch of companies like Aura or Whoop or Eight Sleep that are, or Fitbit that are really pushing the boundaries of what it means to continuously track and monitor yourself. But then going into the mental health space, it's quite difficult to measure your mind. And so what's happened is there's this big disconnect between physical health tracking, which is starting to become better and better. And like now we have continuous glucose monitoring devices that I tested as well. And then your mind. And really, unless you can stick, you know, your Neuralink style chip into someone's brain, and even that you can't do a lot with right now, how can you really understand what someone's thinking and feeling? Well, it's very, very difficult, obviously. But in the next five to 10 years, do we believe that you will be able to get some kind of resolution data on how someone feels? We think the answer to that is yes. And then if you want to make that person feel better, how can you support them in that journey? And we believe that having a face-to-face instructor, someone that can help guide you, that personal trainer for your mind, is that kind of mechanism for unlocking better mental performance as well. So we think that right now we're still super early in terms of what you can track, but in the next five to 10 years, you'll be able to track even more things than you can track today because probably everything will have some kind of sensor attached to it that you can then tap into. And you know, if you could fast forward five years, 10 years, and my labs has achieved everything that it set out to, like, what does that world look like? What does success look like for my labs? Success for us is very much geared around how many people we can impact. And I think when it comes to you know that this original thesis of tech for good, the main thing that we're driven by is can we help as many people as possible live happier lives around the world? And thankfully with Mind Labs, the product is very much aligned with that vision. So um, success for us is, you know, Mind Labs is in every single country in the world, and maybe there are localized versions of Mind Labs with localized instructors, with the same underlying platform and ability to gather data, with more integrations with wearables, possibly even looking into our own wearables, so we can get all of that high resolution data. But fundamentally, we've got this massive community around the world of people saying, without Mind Labs, I wouldn't have been able to to, to live a better life, and that for us is, I guess. The, the reason of being and the reason why we're so passionate about this, because, you know, having done one startup already, I think now's the time where we just want to make more of an impact on the world. And not to say that Car Throttle didn't, but there's another level to impact, I think.
If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. And if someone's listening, obviously they should use my labs if they are struggling, but if outside of my labs like the journey you've been on what you've learned from my labs what are some like simple things on a daily basis that people could introduce into their habits that could help them I th- yeah i think the the biggest thing that you can do is to set a very very small piece of time as regularly as you can to start building the habit and that habit creation is just so difficult and unless you can allocate time at lunch or time in the morning or time before you go to sleep even if it's five minutes or less than five minutes to practice a technique or a breathwork technique what happens over time is thanks to neuroplasticity and you know your brain's natural ability to learn new things you can actually learn the ability of becoming more relaxed or you know not reacting to certain things in ways that you might have reacted to in the past and that's all that we're trying to do here is we're trying to teach you techniques that you can then incorporate into your life when mind labs might not be around and where you might be you know at work in a meeting and someone said something and you're okay let's just take a deep breath or maybe i'll try this four seven eight breathing technique or box breathing technique and that's where i think the healthy habits comes into i don't think we're taught enough when we're young how to best take care of our minds PE classes, we were doing the bleep test and running back and forth. And, you know, we were taught about what a good diet looks like, but were we taught how to take care of ourselves and how to meditate and best practices for breath work, how to breathe, how to do visualization techniques. And these aren't, you know, woo woo techniques. These are techniques that have real scientific grounding. Um, the answer is no. So I think realistically it's, can we help teach a new generation tools that we didn't have? Um, in order for them to live happier lives. And I feel like this generation as well have so much more pressure. Like everything's amplified with social media. Like you're exposed to so many more things. There's more pressure. There's more kind of comparisons going on between you and other individuals. Um, and all those things, I think, actually make having good mental health even more difficult, which means that you need more products like Mind Labs to support this generation with what they just have to deal with that we didn't have 15 years ago. <laughs> Cool. Um, to chat a little bit about your personal journey as a founder. So um, on your third startup, you've done two with the same co-founder. I mean, you may not know what it would be like to do without a co-founder, but I assume it must feel good having someone to go through that journey with. Like, Could you imagine trying to build my apps as a solo founder and, and how that would be different to how it works with the co-founder dynamic? Yeah. So actually with Carthoto, I was a sole founder and Gabs was... Um... He, he came into the company two or three years after we started and became chief operating officer, but he wasn't a co-founder. So I wasn't really able to share a lot of the things um, in the early days, obviously, you know, towards the end of car throttle, um, you know, we, we shared pretty much everything, but there was always something that I knew that I would never do another business without a co-founder. And, it, and you know, there, there's a lot to say about the fact that we have complementing skills there are things that I'd say I'm better at. I know things like Gabs is much better at than me. And that works really nicely. But I think the main thing is actually just support because startups aren't easy. And most of the time, when you go through a down patch, 
the other person isn't probably at that same level that you are. So you kind of balance each other out when one person is having a good day, the other person might not be having a good day and vice versa, which means that there's a steady shit. Whereas when you're the sole founder, if you have a bad day, you're probably going to, it's, it's going to be visible. Everyone else will be able to see it. And then you have to really fight to come back out of that. And it's, it's, it's a struggle. And that's probably what I went through, you know, struggles myself uh, with car throttle. But yeah, I'd say that's the main thing is support. It's someone to bounce off. It's someone to vent to as we do. Um, it's someone that can appreciate how difficult this is, but then at the same time, it's someone that can motivate you and get you out of that slump and also push you to achieve better things. And sometimes that accountability is exactly what you need to just achieve that little bit more. So I'd say, you know, I would never run a business on my own again, because the, the, it's just, it's too stressful, frankly. In terms of, we touched earlier a little bit about, obviously, my labs is a different type of business. It's something that could have a global impact on people's health, um, a huge positive impact. With that in mind, have you deliberately gone about building my labs in a slightly different way to car throttle? And that could be in terms of like the company values, the culture you're cultivating, the people you're bringing in, the type of people you're bringing in. Yes, definitely. I think when it came to recruiting for my labs and start starting to build the culture, we wanted to make sure that we were bringing in people that had, I guess, some kind of expertise that we wanted to initially tap into, but also just, you know, I guess people that were thinking about this space in a smart way. So when it came to, you know, hiring on the product, engineering, design, actually all through the company, one of the big things we always like to find out is how much affinity they have to the space. And, and most of the time we find that someone that is interested in working for Mind Labs has a reason as to why the mental health space is relevant to them. And that is really nice because what it does is it means that there's a passion for them that, that they might not be passionate about mental health, but there's a reason as to why they want to create a product that will change the world. And often that is the that is the kind of sole connector between people they've experienced or they know someone that's experienced mental health problems and therefore they really want to help solve it. I mean, I think obviously from a culture point of view, it has been difficult in remote first world, but we've made sure to have an office both in London and in Berlin where people can see faces. We didn't go completely remote only. We made sure that we try and bring people into the UK once every quarter, trying to foster that kind of face-to-face -face relationship. We could probably do more. I think it's difficult to find the right balance between giving people the flexibility, but then also understanding that they do need to see human faces every now and again to make them feel part of that community. Um, but yeah, I think we did that in the right way, not going fully remote and by having that kind of best of both worlds. And yeah, I think culture is what you as the founders practice. And so for us, I'd like to think that we are in the detail and we are not afraid of getting our hands dirty. We're not afraid of contributing. We want to contribute. We want to help. And hopefully that's kind of given that culture of accountability where, we want people to step up and own and take responsibility, hopefully in the same way, ways that we have as well. And when it comes to hiring, uh, one thing I always admire about founders of startups is a lot of time, especially if it's your, you know, your first time founder, but even if you're not, at points you're having to hire for skill sets you know very little about. Um, you know, you're, you, you're across sales, marketing, finance, tech, product. You'll only probably come from one or two of those backgrounds at best. How do you navigate that? So if you're bringing in a role you've never had to hire for, um, who do you go to for advice? How do you make sure you're bringing in the right people as much as you can? It's a difficult one because A, you would hope that you would A, 
you know, learn a lot about the role that you're hiring for. And so I did a lot of reading. So product's an interesting one. Um, and that's where we've used um, you a couple of times now in helping us hire for products. In the previous business, we didn't have a product manager because it wasn't that type of business. It was more media focused and, and a content play. So I guess I had to learn a lot about, you know, what do we firstly want in a product manager or a head of product? What does a good product manager or head of product do? What does an ineffective product manager or head of product do? I'm also lucky to be part of certain communities like other CEO groups, communities, people that I can talk to about, you know, good practice. And that helped me also to understand more. I think, frankly, you know, working with good recruitment partners, not to make this a shameless plug, but you know, learning from people that have been in the space and do it means that I'm also learning. Um, and then I think also it's just getting your getting your hands uh, muddy. So, you know, me doing a lot of those interviews, asking questions to understand what they do at their current roles, to understand what it is, what it is that we should be looking for um, helps a lot. And then I think the other fundamental is they might have the skill sets, but you're also hiring for the softer skills. And that aptitude really in an early stage startup is also super important. So do they do they take pride in their work? Do they hustle hard? Are they optimistic? Because generally speaking, to change the world, you need to firstly think that you can change the world before you can go out and do it. And actually, I found that the best hires for us, whilst they might have a, a gleaming CV, they also exhibit, exhibit the traits that we would really want from from early stage employees in the softer skills, and that is really what defines and makes them successful versus just you know their LinkedIn. And I think you know that's that's a big learning uh, when it comes to startups as well. And and you don't always make the right decisions. And I think you you like to think that you will always have a hundred percent hit rate when it comes to hiring. It's not always the case. And I think I heard a quote that. You know, the best founders only hire right 50% of the time. So if you're only hiring right 50% of the time, that means half the other time you're wrong. And that's just something that a two-week interview process will never be able to tell you, that how are, do they actually work with you on a day-to-day -day basis? And yeah, sometimes you do get it wrong. You just got to put your hands up to both parties and go, I'm really sorry, like we just didn't get it right. Um, and and just not being afraid to, to make those decisions because they are tough and at the end of the day, we're a human company. We have to take care of ourselves mentally, but often that also works in the way that you have to also be willing to admit when things aren't working for the sake of everyone's uh, mental health too. 100%. And just coming back to one of the points you made, because I think that's something that comes up a little bit, is like where founders can go to people for help. So obviously speaking to experienced recruiters is definitely one way. But in some some of these kind of closed community groups that you you're in, is that something you you get access to from like your investors? Is that like just being quite well known within certain founder communities? You just get invited to. How could people, I guess, get into those kind of communities if they're listening? Yeah, sure. I mean, so if I was a brand new founder starting again, I would pick a company that's at the same level as myself, and I'd go on Crunchbase or I, you know, on Twitter if they haven't raised around yet find people with similar followers, levels, similar types of companies, even in the same niches or adjacent niches and spaces. Generally, you'll be able to tell their gauge, their level of success by looking at, you know, similar web or followers or some, you know, uh, metric and then reach out and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm the founder going, probably going through the same struggles that you are. would love to swap notes. I do it all the time still. Um, I'm also, I guess, lucky that I've built up relationships exactly in that way over the last eight or nine years. So there's always, you know, there are always founders that are at a similar stage or one step ahead. And ideally, what you do want to have is finding founders that are one step ahead of where you're at. 
So if you've just raised pre-seed, you're close with a founder that's just raised their seed. If you're at seed, they've just raised their series A. So you've always got someone to kind of look forward to and someone that you can kind of benchmark roughly against. But really, it's just getting yourself out there and trying to find people at the same stage. They're the people that are most likely to reply to you and most likely to want a relationship. And then you're hoping that, you know, you can build up five to 10 people within that network, create a WhatsApp group, start sharing, being open, honest, transparent about what's working, what's not working. Oftentimes, other founders just want a shoulder to cry on. So um, can you share your problems and will they then feel comfortable sharing their problems? And that's how you form the kind of strongest relationships and bonds. Great advice. Thank you. And talking about hiring a little bit more, I know no one's perfect and everyone's finding it tough at the moment. Where do you think, like what what do my labs do really well when it comes to hiring and, and how are you attracting really good people into the business? So I think where we where we've done particularly well is A being quite specific about the story that we're telling. So I think it's quite easy for us to show that vision and we know we're a tech for good product. And so we need to show off about the fact that this isn't like going to work at Facebook or Amazon or Fan. This is a fundamentally different proposition. And if you do want big tech, this isn't for you. So we've been quite good at filtering out people that do want to actually work at early stage in a tech for good company. I'd like to think that we've probably run quite a good process just in terms of um, doing the work up front, which obviously you've helped us with as well, to make sure that everything is mapped out prior to us having even started a search. I think historically, uh, we may not have done that You know, at Car Throttle. It might have been a bit more wishy-washy. What that allows you to do in exactly the same way as a fundraise is run the process tightly. Everyone's at the same stage. You know what the next steps are going to be. You know who's in the interview next, and there's no ambiguity. And then I think in the background, we built quite good processes around scorecards, being very clear about what attributes and traits we're looking for, people in the business knowing what good looks like, what not so good looks like, and therefore being very, very objective and not subjective. Because I think the biggest the biggest problem that I've seen in other startup hiring processes is such a high level of bias. And when you are starting to grow a team, you can't have that bias filtering through because then other people aren't empowered to make hiring decisions. So you have to have a formula for what you look for. And that, like I said, half the time that works really well, half the time it doesn't, but at least you've got kind of your standardized process in place. So, you know, the processes can always be improved, but I think we did that quite well early on. And for context, how, how big is MindLabs now? How many people are there? We are around 20 people uh, at MindLabs today. And in terms of how you've grown today in terms of like hiring channels, because um, I think this again is something that early stage founders sort of struggle with is like how much should we be trying to do ourselves? How can we get referrals? Because they're really effective, but hard to get. When do we need to use recruiters? It's costly. In terms of getting to 20, like which channels have you used and, and what's been successful or less, less successful? Yeah. So in terms of the 20, I'd say there's probably a split in inbounds versus outbounds. I'd probably say it's about 50-50 split inbound to outbound. So for some of the technical positions, we did use recruiters um, because I think our speed to market was super important for us. So we were willing to spend for, for faster paced hiring. But obviously, we then there's a conversation about what the best recruiters do and how best to work with a recruiter, which I guess we can come on to. For the inbound um, applications, I think what helped us was having a really strong brand um, having really good materials that people could understand and learn more about MindLab. So, you know, the website plus Notion pages that were public, plus, you know, meeting the team, team members on LinkedIn, uh, we were easily searchable. So people could see our backgrounds and see where we'd come from to find and dig. 
um, we, were, we, we went outbound, we would message people on LinkedIn, we would find their email addresses, we would post on very specific job boards. So when it comes to like production, we would focus on production and video specific job boards. Um, and that really did help us, and especially when it came to like internal referrals. You know, we've had a, a handful already of internal referrals from existing members of staff. That is also super powerful because they're putting their reputation on the line to bring someone into the business. And we incentivize those, but often they are cheaper than a recruiter. Um, and oftentimes you are finding people that have really enjoyed working with previous people in, in previous roles as well. So I would actually invest a lot of time into leveraging existing networks first and foremost. I would then, you know, make sure that your brand documents are very visible and public. Um, I think we're big fans of trying to build as much in public as you're comfortable with. And then, of course, there's the kind of how to work best with with a recruiter. Um, but I think that's probably like a whole whole other big topic. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And, and I always point people in my lab's direction when it comes to like how to have a good careers page and actually invest in great content on the website. Because I find a lot of times startups are hiring and it's it's a real priority within the careers button or page is kind of like hidden away down the website somewhere. It should be front and center. Um, it is a big topic, but I'm going to ask you quickly, like I think you've had mixed experience with recruiters across all of your ventures um, at a high level. Like what are some of the red flags of things to look out for? Like if founders are chatting to recruiters and trying to figure out who's good, who's bad, who should we, who should we trust with these hires? What are good things to look out for? What are what general red flags to look out for with recruiters? I think, yeah, it's a very difficult question. And having worked with a bunch of different recruitment firms, for me, the best recruiters today that I'll work with are very targeted about their approach. I think I've been, you know, talking with recruiters that have more of a spray and pray approach. And especially at an early stage, I just don't think it works. It might work later on when you're slightly more scaled. Um, but when you're this early on, you really have to sell people on the mission and the vision. And that comes with a very targeted outbound approach. Um, and so I wouldn't really be looking at recruiters that are offering you 30, 40, 50 CVs, because that means that they're not targeted people. You should be looking for three, four, five CVs of people that have a high chance of converting through to an offer that you've also spent a bit of time in, you know, selling them on, hyping them up, making sure they understand the role um, completely. So I think that's number one is having an expectation of what good quality looks like. I think you have to also be aligned before you've even started the process in terms of how to best sell your company. Because I've had recruiters that would talk about mind labs in a very different way to how I would talk about mind labs. And that's a problem because clearly then candidates have a mismatch of expectations when they start to come into the interview funnel as well. Um, so, you know, like you put together a very clear briefing document, which is probably one of the most concise, not, uh, you know, fully rounded documents we have, which is super helpful. And then I think it's really just quality of communication. You know, how quickly do they respond, reply? How on it are you? Are they? Because as founders, you tend to be very much on top of things. We like to think you're on top or you're just constantly wondering about what's happening. And it's frustrating when you have to go and, you know, chase up people and say, oh, how, how's this candidate doing? So the best recruiters are very active and you'll be able to tell that from their communication style uh, with you. So, you know, do they reply to your messages quite quickly? You know, are they thoughtful about how they send their emails? Do they lay everything out very methodically? And you don't have to then start reading between the lines or guessing anything because that's when things get messy again. So, yeah, it's just good quality communication, um, not just with yourself, but with the candidates as well. Great points. And 
whenever I'm speaking to startups, like I try and get them to start thinking about their talent brands and getting those foundations in place in terms of like the right interview processes, the right frameworks, scorecards. It's hard. You have to balance, get that balance right of direct hiring efforts and how much time you could have been put into that versus the cost of external partners. And I think that's the, the ongoing challenge. But I, I think the key is to start getting those things in place. And then when you start to hire a certain velocity month on month, that's when you can really start building, and I guess, like an in-house function out, someone who can manage that talent function for you in-house. Is that something, I, have you thought about that kind of down the line? And at what point, what trigger point it would take for you to bring in like an internal talent person? I think it would probably be after Series A. I think at that point, when we'd then be looking to scale up the teams, it would probably make sense to have the go-to person for anything to do with talent first and foremost, not, not even just for recruiting new people in, but to also improve internally how um, you know the team members feel, because I think it's super important to invest in the team. And again, when you're at seed stage, you're still scrappy, you're still wanting to invest more time in building and more time in you know getting to stronger product market fit than um you know, scaling out team-related functions. But I think that would come in pretty soon after Series A. Cool. Um, and finally, when MindLabs are hiring, if that's now or in the future, like what's the best way for people to reach out to to the business? Yeah, the best way of, of seeing the roles that we have available are going on the MindLabs website. We are mindlabs.com, checking out our careers page. Um, we try and, you know, always keep that up to date. So if there are any active roles, um, that's, you know, best place to, to search for. Amazing. Well, Adam, thank you for chatting with me today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.